Three CEOs walk into a bar. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Apple's event tomorrow. Today, we're going to talk about CEOs. And let's start with Target, because Target announced that CEO Brian Cornell is going to be in the job for another three years, which is noteworthy because apparently Target had a policy in place that CEOs have to retire when they hit the age of 65. (laughs) Cornell is 63, which was another surprise to me. He does not look 63 years old. He He looks great. But where do you want to go with this? Because when you and I were talking earlier today, you did not seem so. I was surprised by this policy. I didn't know they had it. You didn't seem all that surprised. No, I mean it's definitely it's something that I think it was more common than it probably is now. It is something that that was far more common years ago. Life expectancy maybe wasn't what it is today. Retirement meant something maybe a little bit different than it does today. And I mean, let's face it, being the CEO of a a major corporation um, in America, which ultimately, if you're a major corporation in America, that means that you are more than likely a global organization uh, to some extent. I mean, that that just requires a certain skill set that not a lot of people have, right? There's a limited pool of talent from which you can choose. But just generally, the idea that the older older you get, the the less polished maybe your decision making becomes, and you got to you got to be concerned with those types of things. And so, so boards typically are trying to see around that corner and make sure they don't run into a buzzsaw, where all of a sudden, you know, the executive talent is isn't necessarily able to uh, to get the job done, and and then they are they're faced with that sort of long arduous process of trying to find someone to replace him or her. Uh, so. Now, I mean, I think you're seeing more and more companies are just just putting putting that sort of mentality on the back burner because because CEOs are are, are just more capable for doing the job for longer periods of time. And I think Brian Cornell's a perfect example there. Uh, but but uh, you know, I think that I, I was reading through this. I saw that there was a time if you go back to 2018, um, it was Lloyd Blankfein. I, be, I believe he was retiring from Goldman Sachs, and and he. He said, I thought this was pretty interesting. He said, when times are tougher, you can't leave. And when times are better, you don't want to leave. And I think I think that really rings true. I mean, when things are going well, you're like, golly, I could do this forever. And when things are going poorly, you you have a sense of responsibility, or at least I would think most people would, and they don't want to leave the team hanging. And so it is a very difficult difficult thing to time. And and I think that in in Target's case, I think they've just seen the writing is on the wall that Cornell has done a very good job with the business. I mean, been there since the middle of August of 2014. If if you look at his track record over that stretch of time, I mean, the total return for investors if if you've owned Target. Throughout his tenure, I mean, that, your total returns are better than 250 percent, and that's outperforming the market handily. And I think that he's he's 
built up a pretty good track record of helping this bi this business pivot into sort of this digital age. He's made some smart acquisitions. I think the one the, the shipped acquisition towards the end of of 2017 really stands out to me. But I think when you put that all together, uh, and then you look at his work history. I mean, he had stints with PepsiCo and, and Walmart and Michael Stores. I mean, he's very experienced in this in this realm. And and I, you know, you said it too. I mean, he's still he's still a young guy. I mean, what sixty three turning sixty four. This keeps him there till you know, around sixty six. So it's not really well beyond that sixty five uh, year range. Honestly, it wouldn't shock me if he stayed on longer than that because he does seem like he really enjoys what he's doing, and I think he's enjoying his success. And kind of going back to that blank fine quote, you know, right now times are tough, and he feels responsibility. That that worm, as they say, will turn, and and he's going to be in a, in a period where things are going really well, and he's probably not going to want to leave then either. <laughs> I like this as a target shareholder. I like the certainty it provides, uh, just sort of locking him in. Um, I do wonder the extent to which the recent struggles for the company and Cornell's admission over the summer, and he took responsibility. You know, he basically said the buck stops with me. He he blew the uh, the inventory mix, um, and I appreciate that. So I I wonder if part of this was to not only. Um, send a signal about the backing that the board has for Cornell, but also to give a sense of like, no, 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 we're in a rough stretch here. He's going to see us through this. Um, and you're right, he may stick around beyond that. Although I, I think there's a decent chance that two years from now, the conversation, uh, unless there is another announcement, um, I think the conversation starts to become, okay, is this his last year? And naturally, what does the succession planning look like if, in fact, it is his last year? Yeah, and it does make you wonder the meanings behind closed doors. Who really initiated this this idea, right? I mean, do you think it was Cornell who said, "Listen, I really want to stick around here. I feel like we've got this thing going in the right direction. And once economic conditions improve, you know, we we really have a lot of potential here." Or if the board approached him and said, "Hey, you know, listen." We we really want a little bit of certainty here, and we're trying to plan for the future. But understanding that, in order to do that, we're going to need some time to to really hunt for the the right talent to take over when your time is up. Um, this certainly does give us at least a, a timeline with which to work, right? I mean, if if the board is is looking at this appropriately, they would be. I think starting to plan for that succession now, because any any which way you cut it, I mean, I just I just can't imagine that he wants to be doing this when he's seventy. I mean, maybe he does, but at some point you kind of feel like you want to go off and, and and enjoy, you know, those 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 remaining years, right? Enjoy the fruits of your labor, so to speak. And so um, it, it does. Obviously, it feels like we're we're closer to the end for him than than not. Um, but yeah, it 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 it's always it's always a little bit of a wild card here. I mean, you remember we had these conversations with Bob Iger and Disney for so long. I mean, it just it just kept on postponing, and part of that was because it was a business and a little bit of a a little bit of a uh, a pivot, a little bit of a shift. Target at this point, I mean, I think probably the hard work has been done in transforming this into a digital omnichannel retailer, um, and so maybe he just wants these last few years to be able to really execute and get this thing established. Uh, but yeah, whether he sticks on beyond that remains to be seen. 
Let's move on to Starbucks because this morning uh, the current CEO Howard Schultz did a sit-down interview on CNBC with Andrew Ross Sorkin, uh, and joining them was the future CEO uh, Laxman Narisman, who uh, was named um, formerly the CEO of uh, Record Ben Kieser, and is going to be taking over the top job in six months. <laughs> He's going to be taking over as CEO in April. And I'm curious what you. I don't think you and I have talked about this offline. Um, I was initially puzzled by this idea that uh, we're, we're, you know, there was all this buildup of we're going to name the CEO in the fall. Here's the next CEO, but actually he's not going to be taking over until the spring of 2023. And the more I think about it, Jason, the more I'm sort of warming up to the idea. Um, given all of the challenges that Starbucks currently faces as a business, um, some of their own making, some that are not of their own making. But before we get into that, um, what was your reaction to the news that this is the new CEO and the news that it's not going to happen for another six months? Yeah, I mean, I think with, with Laxman, I mean, there's just a lot that we don't really know. I mean, I think. I think coming from Reckett, he's probably got some pretty good background there, at least um, in, in in running a, a global organization, a global beverage company like Starbucks. Um, and, and I, you know, I like the fact that he's only 55. I mean, you, you you're not gonna have to worry about him hitting any sort of mandatory 65 year retirement age. Not that Starbucks has that. I don't know that they do. Maybe they do. Um, I don't think they do, but if they um, do, it's not sixty-five because Schultz yeah. is sixty-nine. <laughs> well, they they have made they made, they could they could have made an exception. I and, and yeah, I just don't know. I can't imagine. I can't imagine they do. But I, I do think. I, I think with Starbucks, you know, there's a very interesting um, piece in the Wall Street Journal over the the weekend. It was, it was several days now, but it was titled "Starbucks is Rethinking Almost Everything, Including How to Make Frappuccinos." And ultimately, what the article, the crux of the article, what it was getting at, at least at least the way I look at it, it could be argued that Starbucks has really underinvested in itself over the last several years. And it's a company you ultimately was built as a third place, right? It was built with that third place mentality, trying to give people another place to go to congregate, to relax and enjoy, whether alone or with a group. But now, I mean, you fast forward to today, Starbucks has essentially become an app on our phones. It's much less about, hey, I want to go hang out at Starbucks. And it's more, well, I'm going to stop by and grab something from Starbucks on, on my way to wherever, right? It's become an app on our phones. It's made it far more convenient than ever before, which is great for consumers. And, and honestly, it's, it's great for the business as well. But the problem is, they didn't pivot enough to accommodate for this. And so, you know, the article talks about this fact you got cafes that once averaged 1,200 orders a day, now they're up to 1,500. Right, and you've got you've got stores that were averaging one million dollars in annual sales ten years ago, now chalking up three million dollars in sales a year, and and these these stores haven't fundamentally fundamentally they haven't changed. They're still equipped ultimately the same way. They're still set up ultimately the same way, and because Starbucks now is a different type of business, a far more digital, far more omnichannel business, these these. Cafes aren't set up 
as efficiently as they should be, right? And so Starbucks ultimately has not invested in itself the way that it really should have. They've underinvested in themselves. And so to me, when I see that Laxman is is there's going to be that sort of six month. Um, grace period into kind of getting acclimated with the company and sort of strategy. I think part of that really is that 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 Schultz would like to be able to work with him and sort of seeing this new age of what Starbucks needs to become, right? It goes back to that article. They're rethinking almost everything. They need to rethink how these stores are laid out because it's not just about consumers and how we get our stuff from Starbucks. Even more so, it's really about the folks that work at those cafes. It's about the people that run those shops. We need to make sure that they're okay and happy with their work and the way that things are set up. I mean, you know what I mean? When you, when you grow up and you have a job here and you have a job there, and everybody loves to complain and you criticize and you think, well, this could be done better, this could be done better. You got a lot of good ideas. And so I think what they're really trying to do is, is ultimately rethink how these stores are laid out, how to accommodate for this sort of Starbucks 2.0 that now has become more um, in app on our phones and access to convenient beverages, for the most part, food to a lesser degree. Um, and so, from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense that he gets that six-month grace period to get in line with kind of the thinking or the vision that maybe Howard Schultz has. Because I do feel like, at the end of the day, he Howard Schultz is is, is the one who is most intimately familiar with this business and what it ultimately should look like. Part of uh, what he's going to be doing over the next six months is traveling around, visiting stores, meeting with sort of those regional managers, which reminds me a little bit of. Um, this is not an apples to apples comparison, but it reminds me a little bit of when Steve uh, Easterbrook took over at McDonald's. Um, he didn't have the onboarding grace period. And and by the way, let's just put aside how Easterbrook left <laughs> McDonald's. Let's just put <laughs> yeah. that aside. Yeah. Um, but when you think about how he came into that job, and Essentially, gave himself um, a, 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 not a grace period, but basically signaled to Wall Street, "Hey, I'm going to be. Here's what I'm going to be doing over the next three to six months. I'm going to be meeting with people. I'm going to be meeting with the franchisees. I'm going to be do, asking a lot of questions. I'm going to do a lot of listening, and then I'm going to come out with my plan for this company. Um, and that worked." Right up until the point that he had to be dismissed yeah. for perfectly valid reasons, but uh, but but it, you know it it strikes me, Jason, that the uh, you know one version of the future is that's that's how the next six months goes. That when Laxman finally takes over in April, he like he has his plan in place, um, and uh, to your point. Part of it is absolutely investing uh, in the locations in ways that you know they've done some investments, and certainly the new locations for Starbucks, yeah, um, overwhelmingly in the U.S. are drive-through oriented. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see. But I, uh, as a uh, as a Starbucks shareholder of 20 years plus, that is absolutely my hope. Yeah, and I think something to keep in mind um, is is going to be how it's going to be this relationship between Laxman and Howard, right? I mean, Laxman's going to have the benefit not only of working closely with with Howard over these next six months, but that'll extend beyond that, right? I mean, Howard will still be on the board, and I mean, he'll still be essentially an advisor. Um, for for Laxman. Now that could be seen as a good thing or a bad thing, right? And, and ultimately, my feeling is, my thinking is, because Howard seems so convinced that he's got the right guy for the job, the right person for the job, 
that Laxman is in line. He sees that same sort of vision that perhaps Howard ultimately sees. Because if you had the two conflicting, right, then you might run into sort of a Disney situation where you have outgoing Iger and incoming Chapek. And it, at the very beginning, it seemed like they were simpatico, right? It seemed like they were they were on the same page. But but very quickly thereafter, it became obvious that they weren't. And, and Chapek wants to make this his Disney. Now that may work out well. It may not work out. Time is going to tell there. But we're already seeing you know, decisions being made that would not have been decisions that Iger made. And we've seen Iger be critical of Chapek and what he's done with Disney to this point. I think Howard Schultz is so convinced they got the right guy because you know they went through the process of interviewing and they feel like they've got this person who is who's seeing the same vision of the future. And so assuming that they can work well together, assuming that that Laxman has the self-awareness and the humility to know that Howard Schultz knows Starbucks better than anyone in this world and and he wants to tap that resource for valuable knowledge. And as long as they're on the same page, I think things work out very well. I think what you need to keep an eye out is for any potential conflict, and um, you know perhaps that manifests itself in ultimately Shelp stepping away as an advisor for the board. I just you know, the time will tell there, but I think uh, assessing that relationship six months down the road, a year down the road, and so on, I think will be a good sort of indicator as to as to, as to how uh, the future should unfold for Starbucks. Fingers crossed. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. Jason Pfeiffer is the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and author of the new book, Build for Tomorrow, Embrace Change, Adapt Fast, and Future-Proof Your Career and Life. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Pfeiffer to talk about key takeaways from his book, including how a product can change society and still not be a great investment. In your book, it's it's all about change. And one of the poster childs for missing out on changes is Blockbuster, particularly in its relationship with or its battle against Netflix. And it, you you kind of mentioned it's easy to look at Netflix and basically say bad things happen to dumb people, right? Or look at Blockbuster and say that. Look at Blockbuster and say that. But bad things happen to dumb companies. We can we can switch it out for that. So when we look at the Blockbuster and Netflix story, you talk about the outside investments and the pressures that were put on on Blockbuster at the time. What do you think are the complexities we miss? So I think the major complexity that we miss is that we tell the story of Blockbuster as a dumb company run by dumb people who didn't see major change coming. And that is not actually the case. What really happened was that there were a lot of people at Blockbuster who did see the change coming and they couldn't do anything about it. And they couldn't do anything about it because they were structured too much with with incentives that were driving immediate short-term growth rather than thinking about how to set this company up for the long term. And that meant that ideas like developing a digital presence for Blockbuster were shelved in terms of stupid short-term ideas like can we start selling uh, more toys in the store uh, and uh, you know there was even a pushback against the companies getting rid of late fees you remember that if you brought if you brought a, a, a VHS back late that they, at some point they started waiving the late fees as a way to um, to you know 
drive consumer satisfaction and, and make people feel better about renting. And there was an effort to get rid of that because they were losing the money from the late fees. This was really, really bad long-term planning. And it was not something that the, the, you know, the, the CEO of the company at the time could navigate because there was too much external and internal pressure to just keep things focused on the short term. If we want to, and this is what I find as I study companies that that succeed, if we want to make sure that we're building great long-term value, then we need to set ourselves up in a way in which not every incentive inside a company is driving towards efficiency. Because the more that we structure ourselves entirely around efficiency, the more we are going to inhibit our ability to react to disruptive moments. Well, I think there's also a fair criticism in that companies need to focus on what's profitable as well. You look at Facebook, Meta, going to the metaverse, spending a ridiculous amount of money there, and the argument that Mark Zuckerberg would make is is similar to the one that you just did, which is we need to focus on tomorrow. But there's also focusing on the things that make you money is not a bad idea for all companies. So it's 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 incredibly difficult for I would say leaders to find that balance of R and D and focusing on what's What's, what's cashing your checks? So, what have you found about entrepreneurs who are able to find a good balance in that? So, there's a really great point, and I and I don't want to. I want to make sure that I am not contradicting it in what I said because because I think that like look for what I just said there about how efficiency can blind you to disruption. There's also a lot to be said for efficiency. Obviously, what we want to do is we want to identify a uh, great value that we can provide to a marketplace and then figure out how to do it in a way in which it's faster, better, cheaper. That's good growth. But what we don't want to do is then do that in exclusive so that everything else that is changing around us becomes, oh, that's fine. That's a secondary thing. So here's what I think that we need to be doing as leaders. We need to mostly be focused on what is the core value that we are providing to our consumers, not just the product, but the value. How do we understand where the consumer is changing? I, I talked to, uh, I, I've had fascinating conversations with people who are in audience uh, insights research. And what they find is that CEOs oftentimes lose touch with exactly what their consumer wants and who their consumer is, because that's changing very rapidly. And if you don't have a good idea of exactly what people see your value to them being, then you're going to start to lock in on a, on, on, on a product or a service that maybe people don't want or they don't want it in the same way or they're starting to be interested in something else. Uh, uh, let me give you another, another example because you brought up Facebook. I had a really fascinating conversation with this guy named Hamza, Hamza Mudassir, who's a disruption expert at University of Cambridge. And he said that you know, there's a really interesting case to be made that the thing that didn't kill Kodak was the digital camera. You know, That's the story that we always tell, that the digital camera killed Kodak because obviously Kodak was very involved in the development of the digital camera, and then they shelved it very famously. But rather, that the thing that killed Kodak was Facebook. And the reason for that was because when digital cameras first came out, you know, they were kind of garbage. People saw them as a fun toy, but they weren't going to replace the great print photos that people had. And then when Facebook came along, what it did is it gave people the use case for these cam for these digital photos. Now people said, oh, I understand where to put these. I understand how to share them. I understand how they have value to me. Now, Kodak was not being aware of that. They were focused too heavily in on their own industry and what disruption would look like inside the camera film space instead of what disruption would look like in the usability of photos. That is a distinction that is 
critical and that I think that the leaders of Kodak lost sight of because they didn't understand where their consumers were shifting. On, on the nature of change, you look at essentially how societal transformations happen, particularly between something that is new and scary and into something that one can't live without. You call this the 99% there problem. Uh, you talked about this theory with Jim McKelvey, who was the co-founder of Square. And he learned quite a bit about this during the introduction of the, the Square Reader, which basically allowed small businesses to take credit card, which was something that wasn't afforded to many of them before. So, what did you learn about this theory from Jim McKelvey, and how did he handle it at Square? Yeah. So, okay. Oh, the... It, it goes a little bit in reverse, so let me uh, let me tell you. So I had noticed through studying the history of innovation and also watching how a lot of companies adapted to to blowback, you might say, or or kind of negative uh, perceptions. That oftentimes what we were doing is we were confusing a smaller problem with a larger problem. Uh, an example that I give is Lime. So Lime scooters, when those scooters first hit the streets, people were very upset by them. There was a lot of talk about uh, cities banning them. And part of the problem was that people said that these things are too dangerous. The technology is just simply too dangerous. But when Lime dug into the problem, they discovered something uh, pretty compelling. And that was that in fact, a very, very, very small percentage of, uh, I'm, I'm pulling up the actual numbers here. Okay. So of uh, of all trips, 99.985% of trips involved no safety incidents at all. Of the trips with incidents, 93% of them were minor scrapes or cuts. This left 0.0011% of all trips that required medical attention. So these were the ones that were getting all the news attention. And if you dig into that, what you discover is that the, a good uh, percentage of those trips were happening in somebody's first five rides. So now what that you understand that, you can see that what we don't have is a technology problem. What we do have is an education problem. We have a, we have a consumer education problem. And you can solve that by doing things like running clinics so that people's first five rides are happening in a controlled environment. And that addressed a lot of the problems. So th I call this the 99% problem, which is to say that oftentimes we are 99% of the way there on uh, introducing a, a product, on serving a consumer base, but that 1% is problematic and is getting all the attention, and therefore it's a it's a princess and the pea situation where we 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 feel like everything is wrong, even though a very small thing is wrong. So I ran this by Jim McKelvey because I wanted to know what he thought uh, as as a you know a great innovator, and he really liked the theory, and he told me that he thinks that the two most important words that people should be thinking about when they're trying to understand whether or not they have a uh, competitive advantage is whether or not they understand what their but really is. So Jim said, for example, people thought the secret to Square's success was building a card reader that plugged into the headset jack, but really it was the 14 other things in our innovation stack. Now, the competitors didn't understand that, which is why the thing that they tried to knock off was simply the reader, and it didn't go very well because McKelvey understand, understood what they did not, which is that actually it was these other things that they had done, things like uh, you know negotiating better deals with credit card processors, that was ultimately driving the success of Square. And he said, look, every entrepreneur, every leader better understand their butt really. I'm just going to say it again here. People thought, this is what he said, people thought the secret to Square's success was building a card reader that plugged into the headset jack, 
But really, it was the 14 other things in our innovation stack. What is the thing that other people do not see? What is the thing that you understand because you have a foundational advantage that others don't, that is not visible to others? What is that? Because the more that you can understand what your butt really is, the more you can see how you can really capitalize on your opportunity. And this is where I think there's an important connection with with the scooter store. You look at a company like Bird, which basically went from being worth more than I think it was worth close to two. It was worth more than a billion dollars. Yeah. Now it's basically a penny stock. And one of the reasons I, I when I look at that from as an outsider, I think it it has to do with the innovation stack. And it's very difficult for these scooter companies to create deep innovation stacks when the substitution effect is so easy. It doesn't really matter to me as a consumer whether or not I'm using a Lime scooter or a Bird scooter. And you're and, and that company is going to pay for the scooters anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's right. I think there was another problem with these. And and I, I'll tell you, I, the technology I quite love. I, I've used I've used Lime, I've used Bird. I think that it's a great way to get around town. But I think that we often overestimate what disruption looks like and what change looks like. I think that we tend to think that new things are going to wholesale replace old things, which means that when you put scooters out on the street, people are going to just widely abandon the other ways in which they used to get around town and they're going to use scooters too. That's not what happens. What tends to happen is that we integrate new things. So we take the best of the old and we take the best of the old, uh, the new and we have something else. And and as a result, I think these, you know, these these companies have provided uh, a nice additional service for micromobility getting around town, but not at the scale and level of success that I think drove that initial valuation. And so th- that's, a, that's a problem from the company's perspective. For, for you know, I think you're right that there's an innovation stack challenge here. But I think it's also a perception challenge that we, that we all had as to what is really going to be the major impact of introducing a new kind of uh, transportation. And we, we need to be mindful of that. Things are not Things are not always going to replace in either good or bad ways. We're not going to see new things that just 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 sweep out everything that came before them. And I think that we need to temper our expectations as a result. And think about the externalities. In my view, you know, it's with with the, the scooter issue. It's not just injuries. It's it's accessibility. I think if you're able-bodied, you know, it's made it's made cities. I live in a more urban area. It's made it more accessible. But let's say you're pushing a stroller or you're in a wheelchair, and you know, I think scooters in a lot of ways have made cities less accessible for those people with parking issues people just put them in the middle of the sidewalk and um it's it's something that i'd like to see these these companies uh take on a little bit more head on yeah i agree with that i i think i mean first you make a really good point about like the limited use and i think that what we're seeing with with those is that people have found places in which they fit into their lives but it's probably a lot more limited than the companies would like or that other people expected and then you're right that oftentimes I think companies have this challenge in which they assume that people are going to understand their innovation as well as they do. And, and that's that's not the case. I, I think that companies need to build what they call a, what I like to call a bridge of familiarity, where we start not with, hey, I've got this amazing new thing. You're definitely going to ditch every old way that you're doing things and understand exactly how to utilize these and greatness will come. And rather to say, what am I building from? What level of familiarity am I building from? What do people need to get around? What do they understand right now about what is comfortable and safe and what they want from their cities? And then how can I start from there and help bring them to me? When these companies dropped these scooters around, 
and let people just leave them lying around in sidewalks. I mean, look, there's a level of convenience that comes with just having these scooters be scattered around the streets, but it did create a perception problem that was really, really negative. And I think that they could have done a better job of anticipating that, building that bridge of familiarity for people so that people understood exactly how this could fit into their lives better. And then also been more mindful about how to be partners with these cities so that you didn't have that kind of blowback. Jason Pfeiffer, he's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. He also is the author of Build for Tomorrow, Embrace Change, Adapt Fast, and Future-Proof Your Career in Life. It's out right now. Thank you so much for your time. He also hosts the Build for Tomorrow podcast. I should have plugged that as well. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. I'll take every plug you got. That's all for today, but coming up tomorrow, we will have key takeaways from Apple's big event. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.